The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week we're speaking with Dr. Asante Dixon. He is a neuroradiologist and interventional radiologist who is currently practicing on the East Coast. He's also the founder of Ascension Medical Educators. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, this is a a first for me. Um, Clubhouse, the app, descended upon us uh, towards the end of last year. So you're the first guest that I've had on that I've been able to meet on Clubhouse. Boom. That's how we do it to be uh, trailblazing here. Everybody's talking about trailblazing. I'm glad to be a trailblazer. So how, how have you uh, liked using that app so far? I came on at about um, the beginning of, I think maybe the first week of January, and I was on that thing for hours during the day because I was just, I was, stupefied by just the way it was bringing people together in a, in a way I've never seen before. And my first, my first thought as I was um, going in and out of the rooms was, whoever came up with this idea, they're about to be the next Elon Musk because this is an incredible idea. Uh, and as usual, I'm always like, damn, why didn't I come up with that, right? But <laughs> right. It, never, it never quite works that way. Um, and I was on it for a lot in the first month or so, but then I started to back off a little for the following reasons. One, I found myself, uh, becoming a little redundant, um, in terms of some of the things I was saying, because I, I was going into the same rooms of similar topics. Um, and even though the audience may have changed. I found myself kind of repeating myself a lot. And I was like, man, I don't know what kind of value I'm giving here. So I've become a little bit more strategic in what rooms I enter. Um, Second thing is like anything else in social media, uh, there's a huge hustle going on. So you have this influx of people and everybody is claiming to be a professional, a billionaire, a millionaire. And it's hard for me sometimes to tell who is really who and also uh, just for me you know i have a job during the day and i get on clubhouse (laughs) sometimes and i'm like listen i'm tired and you know between the everybody trying to front like they're a billionaire and you know being redundant and then some of the rooms are kind of confrontational and people get on there to really fight each other, whether you're talking about the COVID vaccine and stuff, sometimes I'm like, all right, you know what? I had enough fighting for the day, so I'm going to uh, leave this room quietly. So, but all in all, I would say that Clubhouse, I think it will change the way people conference. Um, And I think it's an amazing app and I'm sure I'll continue to use it. I mean, look, we're, we're together because of Clubhouse, right? So um, I have nothing but positive with some subcategorical negatives from Clubhouse. Awesome. So, Dr. Dixon, let's jump right into it. You practice, I've never met someone like this, a neuroradiologist and an interventional radiologist. So, you do it all. Can you tell us about your practice? 
So, um, yeah, so radiology is divided into diagnostic and interventional. So diagnostic radiology is what most people think about with radiology, which is you have your PAX machines, which are the, you know, four, six, or eight screen computers that you sit and you have all your images up in front of you and your voice recognition and, and uh, dictation software and your um, your tower machine um, also there. Um, it's kind of like a command center um, and you're just interpreting images. So you're reading and giving uh, reports for the emergency room, for the floor, the ICU, and for outpatients. And then there's interventional. So interventional radiology is a relatively new, you know, considering you're talking about 1895 or 1896 is when the uh, the X-ray and Rankins and all that stuff was uh, invented uh, or discovered, shall I say. Um, interventional radiology is procedure. So we do everything from uterine fibroid embolizations, which would be women who suffer from fibroid, heavy bleeding, pain. Um, you can be treated with a myomectomy. Uh, you can be treated with a hysterectomy. Or you can come to us, and what we do is we enter your artery, we thread catheters down into your uterine artery, and we do what's called embolization, which is we block up the artery with embolic material, these microscopic spheres that block up the arteries and reduce the blood flow, which in turn will kill the fibroids or reduce their size, which in turn hopefully will reduce the amount of bleeding that the patient is uh, going to suffer. So that's mm. one, one example I always use because, you know, uterine uh, fibroids are very common and most people will either suffer from them or know somebody who suffered from them. My newest uh, way that I'm doing them recently is I'm doing everything through your radial artery. So historically, we went through your groin, but now I just make a small hole with a needle in your wrist, go in your radial artery, and up your radial artery, up into your arm, down your shoulder, down your stomach, into your uterus. And when you're done, we just put a little little bandage on your wrist and you go home. Right? Huh. So minimally invasive uh, procedures. Uh, and everything from biopsies to stenting to embolization of bleeders. Uh, just I'm on call this week and uh, just had to do a rectal bleeding patient that GI couldn't figure out where they were bleeding from. So I did a similar thing, went in through the groin, went down into the inferior mesenteric artery and the internal iliac arteries found where it was bleeding from, and we embolized to stop the bleeding. And that's body IR. And then there's neuro IR, where we do everything from radiofrequency ablation of metastatic disease to the spine. I do a lot of those cases. We do kyphoplasty, which is cementing fractures. I did a sacroplasty this week. A lady fell on her butt, and she had a sacral insufficiency fracture. So she's got that Honda sign bilateral sacral fractures. They're extremely painful. 
Um, and I get, went in and I cement those fractures to reduce her pain and increase her mobility. Uh, carotid stenting, uh, aneurysm, uh, coiling, AVM, gluing, um, embolization for nosebleeds. Uh, it, it, we run the gamut. If I can find a vessel, I can put a catheter in it and I can treat something. And that's basically interventional. I do both. So on a given day, I may be interventional, but if cases are slow, I'll go back to the reading room and I'll read. So I pretty much do everything. <laughs> How many uh, procedures would you do on an average day? Um, it depends on the type of procedures. You know, sometimes we have like, you know, what I call cheap stuff, which is kind of like your typical paracentesis, thoracentesis, where you're draining fluid out of the peritoneum or draining fluid out of the pleura. Um, you know, it takes me all of seven minutes to consent and put a needle in somebody's uh, abdomen or their lung. And luckily, the nurses will monitor the patient as they're, as they're draining. So I don't necessarily have to stay in the room. I have to stay in the vicinity. So I can kind of, you know, line those patients up back to back, depending on our nursing. So you could potentially hit, you know, five or six of those patients plus a couple biopsies, you know, and maybe one or one or two embolizations, depending. So you could be running anywhere from, if you got really complicated cases, you maybe only may only be able to do two or three a day. But if you've got like a lot of the cheap stuff, you may be able to fit in 15 cases a day. So it depends. Wow. And how many of those cases are you doing with uh, like sedation versus getting anesthesia on board? So um, most of my cases in the spine, I require anesthesia uh, because I want the patient to be still. I don't want a lot of moving around. Um, the spine is, you know, you're looking to avoid the spinal cord or exiting nerve roots. And um, it can be painful because I'm using, you know, pretty large trocars. And I use a mallet, a hammer, right? So, you know, when I'm trying to get in, I'm using a big mallet and I'm banging. And depending on how ossified your bone is, some, some people's bone, it's hard. Like I'm standing on a stool and I'm hitting it like I'm outside in the yard trying to get this <laughs> mallet, you know, to, to get this choke car to move. So those patients, I want anesthesia because I don't want the patient to feel pain and I don't want the patient to move. So most of my neuro cases require anesthesia, most of them. Um, and some of my outpatients, I give anesthesia just because I don't want them to be nervous or anxious. So like those uterine fibroid embolizations, I get anesthesia and you, you, you guys give your, uh, your, uh, your vitamin milk and... Um, and those patients are usually very comfortable and they wake up pretty quickly. Nice, nice. So as an interventional radiologist, is there any clinic involved in your practice? So, yeah. So patients who are coming for outpatient procedures, like, for example, this uterine fibroid embolization, I want to see those patients first. So usually they will come. They will have a sit down with myself and my nurse, and we will take full history, uh, discuss with them the risks, the benefits, 
and the advantages of doing the procedure. We will determine whether or not they fit criteria to have the procedure done. And then we go over exactly what the day would be like if they chose to do the procedure. And then we tell them if you're interested in doing it, you know, we can set them up and schedule them there. Uh, or if they want to come back and think about it there, we always tell them, come back and think about it, go think about it. And if you want to set up an appointment, you contact and we'll do it. Uh, with uh, kyphoplasty and radiofrequency ablation of tumors and things like that, then you want to have a clinic because you want to be able to see those patients, assess them from the ground up, mm-hmm. and then follow them. So yes, there is clinic. Uh, But we don't have clinic for every procedure. There are some procedures that I could literally talk to you on the phone and just tell you, just show up on Monday at 8 a.m. and we'll book a room and we'll book a table. But for some of them, we really need to take the full history and go through the whole gamut because of safety and completeness. That's awesome. Because I I remember back in medical school, I mean, when I was and for most students, when you're picking a specialty to work in the rest of your life, you know so little about what a typical day is like or could be. Um, and this is this practice is so robust. I'll be happy in, in many more specialties, as it turns out. Yeah, I mean, I always say that, I mean, med school exposes you, but there are a lot of specialties that people don't see. Um, yeah. Or if you see them, you see them very superficially. Even in when I was in med school, I went to Georgetown for medical school, and radiology was, you know, pretty extensive as most academic centers are. But there were subspecialties of radiology that even when I was a med student and I did a rotation, I still didn't see. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm I only learned about those subspecialties when I got into residency and got into fellowship and saw what people were doing. So sometimes it's the luck of the draw, depending on what, where you train and what exposure you have. Or what I tell a lot of students is what research you do on your own. Yeah. So along the same lines, that, that pathway to radiology. So you, you went to Georgetown for medical school. At what point did you decide to pursue this specialty? So I have a, uh, I consider it pretty unique, but then over the years, I've realized it's probably not that unique. I went through all of my third year rotations and one by one, I would just knock them down. You know, after I did, I, I remember starting off with like psycho- psychiatry um, and family practice. And I remember after psychiatry, I think I was traumatized. And I was like, I was like, nah, I can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, between the the people getting tackled and and I, I had a problem because I couldn't put together, you know, when people would be talking, you're, you're listening to somebody give a history and their history is not, it, 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 I, I want to be careful because I know mental illness is a serious thing, but I think you have to, as a professional, you have to be able to listen to people when they're ill. And even though they may not be making sense, you in your head need to be making sense of the stuff that's not making sense, right? And for me, that wasn't you. I couldn't make sense of it. And I really struggled with that. So I was like, I can't do that. I said, I can't, I can't help anybody. Um, family practice, I couldn't get onto it. It was just, I remember uh, one of the, att- <laughs> excuse me, one of the attendings, she 
gave a lecture uh, with one of her kids on her lap. And I was so distracted by the kid who was playing with her hair. And I was like, nah, I can't. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. OBGYN, I went through that and I was traumatized forever to this day. I'm, I'm traumatized by OB. That was a six or eight week rotation of me just being absolutely beaten to a pulp by this service of, you know, you'd be pre-rounding. And I don't know, maybe it was just a Georgetown thing, but you'd go to the door of the patient you were pre-rounding on and there'd be a sign that would say, no male medical students allowed. Right. And I'd be like, well, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to round on my patients if I can't get in the room? You know, it was just a really intense environment. And I'll be honest, maybe it was just Georgetown at that time, you know, whoever's listening, they say, that's not true, but maybe it was just my day. It wasn't very man friendly and it was extremely uh, confrontational on that rotation. And I was like, nah, can't do it. I'm out. So basically, I went through each rotation, and by the end, I was like, well, I've gone through everything, and I can't do any of this. And I was walking through the medical school, and another med student who's about a year or two behind me, I ran into her in the lobby, and I said, hey, what's up? And she was like, hey, what's up? She was like, what are you deciding to do? I was like, yo. I don't know what I'm about to do. Everything I'm going through, I can't see myself doing. And she was like, I'm going into radiology. And I was like, radiology? I was like, I never even thought of that because we never had a radiology rotation. Um, radiology was something you could do as an elective. And she's the one who just in that little three-minute conversation made me think about it. And she was like, huh. She was like, you do well in radiology, Asante. You seem like somebody who like doesn't want to listen to anybody. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And <laughs> that's how I started uh, my interest in radiology, just like that. Wow. And then where'd you uh, go for your training? So I did uh, my first year of radiology at Howard. And then I transferred up to Stony Brook Winthrop in Long Island. It is now NYU Winthrop. And then I did two years of neuro uh, training at Stanford. Wow. Definitely been all over. And I know we were talking earlier about kind of some of the healthcare disparities that you see in your field, especially when it comes to uh, cause a lot of what you do is, is kind of saving cold or dead extremities that don't have blood flow. And you right. mentioned kind of a disproportionate amount of black and brown people receiving these amputations. Could you speak a little bit about that? So I don't have any peer-reviewed data at the time to speak to this, but in my experience in the past year of dealing with COVID, I have only been called in emergently to do what's called thrombectomy and thrombolysis, which is to go in and unclog vessels and then try to restore blood flow on specifically mestizo Latinos, right? And I say that specifically, that's a whole nother conversation about people always say Latino, uh, but there are Afro-Latinos, right? So just saying Latino is not enough, right? Mestizo Latinos, 
I'm seeing they're the only ones I'm seeing COVID positive and coming in with these massively clogged arteries and veins that we've got to try to go in and rotor-rooter out. I don't have enough data as to why that is. Um, it may be an association between diabetes, hypertension, comorbidities, and also uh, delayed uh, presentation to the hospital. Um, because I know when I talk to a lot of these patients, I say, well, how long has your leg been like this? And they'll often say, you know, oh, maybe about a week, right? So obviously, if you start to get swelling, uh, pain, and your foot starts getting cold, starts getting cold, you'd probably say it's time to go see somebody. But if you don't have access or you're fearful of access, you are likely to sit home and just say, oh, hopefully it'll be better tomorrow. And by the time you come in, your leg is three times the size of your, your opposite leg. Yeah. Right? So that is a possibility. I, 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 I'm still watching to see where we're going with this, but this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. And then when it comes to kind of the general practice of radiology, vascular surgery and uh, amputations, you're speaking earlier about how um, you go above and beyond to, to kind of combat that, uh, you know, being quick to lose an extremity. Right. Right. It's it's you know, this is not this is not something again. You know, we as physicians, uh, we're people, too. and despite our many years of training, intense training and professionalism, we are people that come into the field with our own experiences um, and our own blind spots and our own bright spots. And for me, when I see, particularly in this past year with COVID, people who have this extensive lower extremity clot, if you can't get the clot clear, the patient is likely to lose their limbs. And by that, we mean amputations. And often with minority patients, um, especially because family members are only now, after a year, slowly beginning to be authorized to come into the hospital, we have a lot of patients who are facing amputation by themselves with no family around to talk to except on the phone. Um, and so I have always made it my business to really try my best to advocate for people historically that have been disenfranchised because I want to be able to lend my, not only my skill and my knowledge, but just my experience in my life as a black man to stay with them and say, okay, let me explain to you why there's a discussion about amputation. Let me explain to you what are the options you have. And I think even my presence with them, it naturally brings the rest of the medical community dealing with the patient to a level of, okay, well, Dr. Dixon is working with this patient. And my hope is that that brings everybody to the idea that they need to give the patient the benefit of the doubt and give them the most time 
to rectify the problem before we go down the road of amputation. Again, this is just something that I do because I always think of in my lifetime of being a physician, when I'm not in the hospital, if I'm not wearing my scrubs with my ID, I am viewed as just a black male, right? And whatever that means to the observer is whatever that means to the observer. And I always think about if I'm in that position, I would like somebody to give me the benefit of the doubt and give me the same amount of option and chance to save my extremity as they would any other patient just based on how I look. Incredible. Incredible and definitely much needed as we work to close these gaps in in healthcare disparities. And Going back to your story of success and, and how far you've come, you know, training at Georgetown and these other fantastic institutions, you have chosen to be intentional about reaching back and helping others achieve the same success that you achieved. And you're doing so through your company, Ascension Medical Educators. Um, and this is a professional service firm of medical educators and physicians with expert academic advising and mentoring for successful careers in medicine. So tell us about this uh, company. So Ascension Medical Educators uh, started about three, three and a half years ago uh, with my mentor, uh, David Taylor, um, who is probably the world's best medical educator. Uh, When I came into Georgetown, um, I was went to Cornell for undergrad, and I thought that I knew enough to survive anything. But let me tell you, um, when you get into that medical environment, you are not the hero anymore. You are in a class full of heroes, and everybody is bringing the mean up and showing you that you're not as tough as you think you are. And I really struggled in my years, my first years of medical education, because all I could offer was intensity. So I could offer sitting in a library for 16 hours. That I could do. But what I didn't know how to do was what Ascension Medical Educators was created to do, which was to teach people how to interpret passages, information how to determine salient information, right? How to determine what is testable versus non-testable information. Uh, If you think back to your medical school and there were always people that they were always at the club, always at the bar, (laughs) right? And you're in the library killing yourself and they're cracking passes, high passes and honors and everything. And you got to ask yourself, how is it that this dude or this woman could be in the bar every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and still get high passes, right? And I think a lot of it is because certain students, because of their background, they are able to process information, determine what is salient and not salient, determine what is testable and non-testable, manage Mm -hmm. their time, right? And also, excuse me, they are also people that they understand what is the progress of the class that they're taking because they have a plan, right? 
And that is not something I learned until way into my medical school after, after being taught by David Taylor, who worked at Georgetown Medical School. And what I decided about three years ago was I want to bottle that algorithm, bottle, bottle that methodology that he taught me and hundreds of other students and be able to provide it in a service that others can benefit from. Because I think that many medical students, they get through, but they get through with a lot of scars. Right? Yes. It, is, it is straight combat. And we talk about mental health being, you know, uh, getting more exposure now. I think about all of the mental health challenges that I had going through medical education as I hit my head up against every wall, learning things the hard way. Right. And what we want to do is we want to be able to teach free medical, medical and practicing physicians. Right. Really, the core components are to optimize the processes required to be successful in medical school, postgraduate education and as practicing physicians. It's really a story of the student now becomes the teacher and, oh, by the way, is working alongside the teacher because David Taylor and I are now co-founders of Ascension Medical Educators. Yeah. And over the last three years, what are some of the results you've seen? Well, I can tell you that the process is amazing to see students come in and many students are frankly lost as I was, right? I'm not saying that I wasn't. And after they follow the instruction and they learn the methodology, we have only seen successes in terms of people being admitted to medical school, admitted to medical school of their choice, increasing scores, standardized test scores like USMLE scores in medical school, people feeling less stress, less anxiety, and being able to function at higher levels in medical school because they are taking a lot of the stresses off their plate as they learn the system, right? Hmm. That is something that Learning the system not only improves your chances of greater academic success, but it also improves your life quality. Because many of us in medical school and medical training, we are suffering in silence, right? Suffering in silence. The big thing we deal with is how do you associate and disassociate or couple and uncouple medical students' natural affinity to align their self-worth with their academic achievement, right? Yeah. So how many times were you in medical school, right? Or well, I say for me, and if I got a high pass, man, for the next week, I was walking around with my chest out and, About you know... A homeless man on the street could have like spit in my face and I'd be like, sir, please try not to spit. 
and <laughs> here's a card for the nearest homeless shelter. I can walk you there if you'd like, right? I was yeah. just, I was heavenly. But if I had gotten a low pass on something or, you know, got a 78 on a test that I just knew I was going to get a 90, that next week I was literally depressed, right? And somebody could have come to me and been like, hey, Asante, I saw the drawing you made and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Museum of Natural History would like your drawing to be up in their uh, display this week. And I'd be like, yo, don't talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really not, I don't want to have a conversation with you right now. I'm not really feeling any of this. Please leave it alone. Right? There is a huge yeah. psychosocial component to medical education that's intrinsic to the system because the system is extremely competitive. So we're attacking it from multiple angles in terms of cognitive and non-cognitive behavior, cognitive essentially being learning the tactics, learning how to learn, and the non-cognitives essentially being behavioral modifications that play a huge role in people's success in medical education. And we break all that down. And I think we've only seen success. And I know a lot of people will be like, hey, nobody only sees success. But remember, success is measured differently. It's not only measured in taking your average from an 80 or 85, but it's also measured in can somebody now return to a normal diet, normal sleeping pattern? Because when they came to us, they couldn't sleep and they couldn't eat. Yeah. Right. So it has been purely successful. Um, We've seen, you know, alcohol use, drug use, um, personality disorders. I mean, people respond to stress differently. And if there's a place where there's stress, it's medical training. You know, actually, when we talk about psychosocial, you know, one of the things that I picked up in medical school was a cough, a dry cough. Really? Um, (laughs) Yep. My second year, one day I was just coming out in the lobby and I started coughing, couldn't figure out why. And from my second year of medical school until fellowship at Stanford, I had been scoped Spirometry tested, girded by everybody from Georgetown to Stony Brook to Howard to Stanford, and nobody could ever figure out what was wrong with me. I was negative for almost everything until finally my dad passed in 2007 from cancer, and I was so distraught and and I was depressed and my primary care doc you know uh he said to me he was like you know typical Long Island Italian doctor he was like Asante let me tell you something he was like you're telling me that from Georgetown to Stanford you've been stuck a million times you breathe in the tubes nobody can tell you what's wrong I tell you what's wrong it's stress my friend and I'd be like, nah, Dr. A, it's not stress. It's something, but they just can't figure it out. He'd be like, no, it's not nothing. It's stress, right? You said it started your second year in med school, right? I'd be like, yeah. He'd be like, yeah, because med school is stressful as fuck, right? And you're giving me typical symptoms here. This is stress. You can't go through 10 years of your life going through every test known to man, and nobody can find out anything, and you're still coughing. He was like, you cough on vacation? And I was like, not really. Hmm. And and son, to this day, 
the only two people who have diagnosed me was Dr. Amazalasso and my mother, who used to tell me all the time, it's stress. And I'd be like, Ma, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm a med student. There's no such thing as stress. And my mother would say the same thing. And then Dr. A, when my dad passed, he was like, why don't you try this medication called a scalitopram? And I was like, hey, ain't that for like depression or something? And he was like, yes, but it also works for anxiety. And do you know, after a month of taking that medication, my cough went away? Oh. For like the first time in like 10, 10 plus years, right? And so <clears throat> what I noticed is, again, when I get really stressed, I start coughing. Wow. And I've been dealing with a whole lot of stuff over here between work and you know how it is. Doctors now fighting over RVUs and, you know, fighting over $500 and, you know, it's real plantation stuff going on with doctors now as we lose control, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've been under a whole lot of stress. I've been coughing a lot. And my mother just the other day, she was like, you're coughing. And I was like, yes, mine. No. Um, I, I mean, I remember when I was studying for the MCAT, there is times that I would be physically ill and sick to my stomach and same thing for step one. Now, now for the folks that are trying to get into medical school, like what would a program look like? What services would you offer to that college student that is preparing their application to medical school? So, right. So we start in freshman year of college and essentially think of us like your personalized medical coach. We essentially walk with you through the process. And so the process may have different levels. There are some students that they only in their freshman, sophomore, and junior years of college want to check in with us maybe once a month just so that we go over the classes that they're taking and see how they're doing and making sure that you know they're functioning optimally. And there are others that they need somebody to walk along with them class by class in an effort to assist them with that methodology that I talked to you about in terms of how to approach information, how to approach passages, how to read, what to read, what not to read, what classes to take, what classes not to take. Um, and we walk through those classes with that student semester by semester. So essentially, this is a customized methodology of interacting with students. So depending on what you want, we can provide it from soup to nuts to just nuts, depending on what you need, right? And as you get into medical school, we continue with you through the medical school process, doing the exact same thing and building uh, sequentially on the years or the months that we've been working with you before. And like anything else in medicine, you're going to hear the same things over and over and over because we have to change the way you think and we have to unwrap a lot of the bad habits that you've acquired throughout your elementary, junior high, high school years, right? So you can work with us in a customized fashion from just an intermittent check-in to literally we are your track coach running with you, weight training with you, and looking over tapes with you. Right. That's how we function. And that's what makes us very unique is that it's customized. It's not what my partner calls cookie cutter, where we're just telling people just study harder. Right. 
just study harder. I mean, we all know we need to study harder, but we need more than that. All right. So that's that's really the key to Ascension Medical Educators is that we have the experience between my partner and I. He's been doing this for over 30 years uh, in one of the nation's top medical schools. And we're able to really use the data to hone people's trajectory into medical education success. Awesome. And I want to make it clear to our, our listeners that, you know, the Black Doctors podcast, um, our goal is to put these inspiring stories of individuals in front of you and in your ears for students that are pre-med, medical students, whatever the case. And, and we're not promoting this uh, product. However, um, I think this can be very useful for so many folks in our audience. I know I've gotten messages about it. Um, so this is not a paid promotion. Um, Dr. Dixon's not paying to, to come up here and, and say all this stuff. But I honestly think this fills a void and a gap for so many black and brown students that are trying to get to where they want to be in life. And, and thank you so much for sharing this uh, program with us. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and I, uh, you know, in addition to, yeah, it's not a paid promotion at all. It's just a part of my life. It's a part of my progression. It's a kid from Long Island, New York, who grew up with, my pants down, and that was only during the daytime because I couldn't leave the house with my pants down, so I had to have my <laughs> pants buckled in the morning. And then, you know, every now and then, every couple periods, you, you drop them down a little bit, you know. And, you know, I didn't I didn't go to school with Tim's, but, you know, every now and then, you know, I put throw a pair in your, in your, in your bag, right? And I went through a lot of phases of trying to decide who am I? And what am I going to be? And kind of straddling that line between, you know, what happens a lot with black males in this country, uh, which is, you know, you want to be somebody, you know, you want to be something, you know, you have a dream that may be academic, professional, but then you also have this other side of you that is very uh, culturally connected to, you know, what many would argue is what is blackness and you know, just the, the, the performance of blackness, the, the cultural uh, uh, vitality of what is blackness and, and street vernacular and hip hop. And, you know, and I went from that into Cornell, into Georgetown, into Howard, into Stony Brook Winthrop, into Stanford. And now I am a chairman of a radiology department. I'm a neuro and interventional radiologist. Uh, I do some amazing things. Uh, I learn every day. I make mistakes. You know, all my outcomes aren't 100%, but I learn. And then I use that, I use that pipeline. I use that transition, that evolution from that kid in Long Island, you know, freestyling on the way home because what I wanted to be was a rapper. You know, I know that's trite, but hey, it is what it is. <laughs> to then saying, I want to create a company that gives back to others so they don't have to hit the same walls I do. You know, it's, it's, it's not a promotion of the company. It's just my story. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us and everything you're doing um, for the culture. For students that are interested in the program, for folks that are interested in learning more about you, 
what's a good way to follow your story, um, reach out if there are questions about radiology. Um, where are you on the on the internet? So uh, I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter. I have Facebook, uh, and then the website. So uh, on Instagram, I am Asante underscore AscendMed. So that's A S C E N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, E D. And essentially the same on Twitter and Facebook. So Asante AscendMed, and that's short for Ascension Medical. Mm -hmm. um, and then our website is www.ascendmed.com. Again, short for Ascension Medical, A S C E N M E D.com. And if anybody wanted to uh, call us, we have a 188 number, and that's 1-888-362-2631. Awesome. Well, Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us. We wish you the best of luck in the future and, and keep on fighting the good fight um, against these uh, blood clots and, and saving these uh, legs out there. Yes, sir. And I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk, not just because it's something that people say at the end of an interview, but uh, also it, it's really just um, I have been following you since we met on Clubhouse, and I'm looking at what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I really am uh, really impressed and enamored um, by your attempt to educate. I was listening to some of your uh, podcast episodes where you were giving medical information. The last one I listened to last, uh, yes, uh, this morning actually, was on the Medical Apartheid book. And listening to you break down the, ch the chapters, even though I've read the book, I thought, this is what people need to know. Right. And if you have this black man anesthesiologist who has gone through the same battle as I have and likely has the same or similar outlooks in terms of what is professionalism and what is his duty to community and what is his duty to his job. But at the same time, you use that position to enlighten and educate. I think that is so powerful, particularly in this time where in medicine, call it the George Floyd effect, call it what you want, there is now a push towards exposing a lot of the inequities and not just exposing them, but actually coming up with and implementing solutions. And I truly believe that history is one of the best solutions you can have. So I really appreciate you know, being on your podcast, talking to you, and, and you viewing me as somebody who can bring value to your listeners because you yourself are giving a lot of value to everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much for the kind words. Dr. Dixon, thanks a bunch for joining us and, and folks tune in next week for another episode. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighbor.